to sleep. Thanks for finding us again. Well, I learned something about myself from a listener this week. Uh huh. <laughs> I learned that I have no idea what a quarter of a century is. Well, of course I know, but I really know now. Yes, it's 25 years, not 250. <laughs> Like I said in an earlier introduction, okay, I was trying to make a joke about the number of episodes we've dropped. Yeah, I know it wasn't much of a joke. Um, if the joke was going to work, I should have said, and I have this written down, a quarter of a millennium, duh, but I could have said, so I've been informed by this listener, wait for this, Sester Centennial. Now that sounds like a disease. Or I could have also said semi-quincentennial as well. Sure, I mean, those words just come right off the tip of the tongue. But thank you, dear listener, I appreciate it. Also, a listener gave us the idea of something else. The idea of learning how many of you hear the endings of our episodes. Those of you who use us for sleep, I know you often go to sleep and that's the end, but it would be interesting to know how many of you play the end of the story later on. Um, here's what the listener thought. I should leave a key word, again I'm reading this, after, oh, after we say goodnight. So you just drop that key word into comments and we can get some sort of account on this, okay? I mean, we could try it today. What do you think? I always love your input. So, moving on. There are no deceased authors for us today. And that's not easy to do, by the way, with classic stories. Today we bring you the very young, very prolific Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, this isn't our first time around with Joyce Carol Oates, though. You can scroll back for Where Is Here? Three Girls, oh, that's such a good one, Marilyn Monroe. Um, I love that. And uh, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Oh, listeners, you really loved that one. The numbers, whoo. Um, what should we know about Joyce Carol Oates? Oh, yes, here we go. Professor, uh, formerly Princeton, currently Berkeley. Um, editor, critic, poet, playwright, novelist, dozens of novels. Um, and, oh, short story writer, hundreds of those. How about awards? There's a few. National Book Award, two O. Henry Awards, National Humanities Award, two Life Achievement Awards, one for the Jerusalem Prize and another for the Stone Award for Literary Achievement. There's the Bram Stoker Award, hello, yes. And just this little fact, She's a five-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She still often writes up to eight hours a day every day. Yes, Miss Oates, it shows. And today's story. Oh, yeah. You're going to see a content warning for this one for suicide. Um, along with a hotline number. Yeah, suicide or death is definitely mentioned in this episode. Um, I learned that Ms. Oates battled her own depression and suicidal thoughts, and it came after the sudden death of her first husband, Raymond J. Smith. Well, 
the protagonist in her story today is definitely caught in events that are unhappy and repeat. And by the way, this storyline also repeats, each time giving us more information. Um, well, there's one more thing about this story. You may have already figured out that there are deliberate similarities, I mean, they'd have to be, right, between this story and Anton Chekhov's The Lady with the Dog. Oh, yeah. There's more than just the title as a similarity, too. Oh, Lady with the Dog by Chekhov? That's our episode number 228. You can make all the comparisons you need. Um, more about that later, because today's story is a two-parter, and uh, we'll have time for it then. All right, everybody, tuck in for Joyce Carol Oates, the lady with the pet dog. if to make way for him. There he stood. He was there in the aisle, a few yards away, watching her. She leaned forward at once in her seat, her hand jerked up to her face as if to ward off a blow. But then the crowd in the aisle hid him, and he was gone. She pressed both hands against her cheeks. Oh, he was not here? She had imagined it. My God, she whispered. She was alone. Her husband had gone to the foyer to make a telephone call. It was intermission at the concert, a Thursday evening. Now she saw him, again, clearly. He was standing there. He was staring at her. Her blood rocked in her body draining out of her head, or she was going to faint. They stared at each other. They gave no sign of recognition. Only when he took a step forward did she shake her head. No, no, keep away. It was not possible. When her husband returned, she was staring at the place in the aisle where her lover had been standing. Her husband leaned forward to interrupt that stare. Oh, what's wrong? He said. Are you sick? Panic rose in her in long, shuddering waves. She tried to get to her feet, panicked at the thought of fainting here, and her husband took hold of her. She stood like an aged woman clutching the seat before her. At home, he helped her up the stairs, and she lay down. <laughs> oh, her head was like a large piece of crockery that had to be held still. It was so heavy. She was still 
Panicked, she felt it in the shallows of her face, behind her knees, in the pit of her stomach. It sickened her. It made her think of mucus, of something thick and gray, congested inside of her, stuck to her, that was herself and yet not herself, a poison. She lay with her knees drawn up toward her chest, her eyes hotly open, while her husband spoke to her. She imagined that other man saying, why did you run away from me? Her husband was saying other words. She tried to listen to them. He was going to call the doctor, he said. And she tried to sit up. No, I'm all right now, she said quickly. The panic was like lead inside her, so thickly congested. How slow love was to drain out of her. How fluid and sticky it was inside her head. Her husband believed her. No doctor, no threat. Grateful, she drew her husband down to her. They embraced, not comfortably. For years now, they had not been comfortable together in their intimacy and at a distance. And now they struggled gently as if the paces of this dance were too rigorous for them. It was something they might have known once, but had now outgrown. The panic in her thickened at this double betrayal. She drew her husband to her. She caressed him wildly. She shut her eyes to think about that other man. A crowd of men and women parting unexpectedly. And there he stood. There he stood. She kept seeing him, and yet her vision blotched at the memory. It had been finished between them six months before, but he had come out here, and she had escaped him. Now she was lying in her husband's arms, in his embrace, her face pressed against his. It was a kind of sleep, this lovemaking. She felt herself falling asleep, her body falling from her, her eyes shut. I love you, her husband said, fiercely, angrily. She shut her eyes and thought of that other man as if betraying him would give her life a center. Did I hurt you? Are you? Her husband whispered. Always this hot flashing of shame between them, the shame of her husband's near failure, the clumsiness of his love. You didn't hurt me, she said.
Sungai had said goodbye six months before. He drove her from Nantucket, where they had met, to Albany, New York, where she visited her sister. The hours of intimacy in the car had sealed something between them, a vow of silence and impersonality. She recalled the movement of the highways, the passing of other cars, the natural rhythms of the day hypnotizing her towards sleep while he drove. She trusted him. She could sleep in his presence, yet she could not really fall asleep in spite of her exhaustion. And she kept jerking awake, frightened, to discover that nothing had changed. Still the stranger who was driving her to Albany, still the highway, the sky, the antiseptic odor of the rented car, the sense of a rhythm behind the rhythm of the air that might unleash itself at any second. Everywhere on this highway at this moment, there were men and women driving together, bonded together. What did that mean, to be together? What did it mean to enter into a bond with another person? No, she did not really trust him. She did not really trust men. He would glance at her with his small, cautious smile. And she felt a declaration of shame between them. Shame. In her head, she rehearsed conversations. She said bitterly, You'll be relieved when we get to Albany. Relieved to get rid of me. They had spent so many days talking, confessing too much driven to a pitch of childish excitement, laughing together on the beach, breaking into that pose of laughter. It seemed to eradicate the soul. So many days of this, that the silence of the trip was like the silence of a hospital. All these surface noises, these rattles and hums, but an interior silence, a befuddlement. She said to him in her imagination, one of us should die. And then she leaned over to touch him. She caressed the back of his neck. She said aloud, would you like me to drive for a while? They stopped at a picnic area where other cars were stopped, couples, families, and walked together smiling at their good luck. He put his arm around her shoulders and she sensed how they were in a posture together, a man and woman forming a posture, a figure that someone might sketch and show to them. She said slowly, I don't want to go back. Silence. She looked up at him. His face was heavy with her words, as if she had pulled at his skin with her fingers. Children ran nearby and distracted him. Oh, yes, 
he was a father too. His children ran like that. They tugged at his skin with their light, busy fingers. Are you so unhappy? He said. I'm not unhappy back there. I'm nothing. There's nothing to me, she said. They stared at each other. The sensation between them was intense, exhausting. She thought that this man was her savior, that he had come to her at a time in her life when her life demanded completion, an end, a permanent fixing of all that was troubled and shifting and deadly. And yet it, it was absurd to think this. No person could save another. So she drew back from him and released him. A few hours later, they stopped at a gas station in a small city. She went to the women's restroom, having to ask the attendant for a key. And when she came back, her eye jumped nervously onto the rented car. Why, did she think he might have driven off without her? Onto the man, her friend, standing in conversation with the young attendant. Her friend was as old as her husband, over 40 with lanky, sloping shoulders, a full body, his hair thick, a dark, burnished brown, a festive color that made her eye twitch a little. And his hands were always moving, always those rapid conversational circles, going nowhere, gestures that were at once a little aggressive and apologetic. She put her hand on his arm, claim. He turned to her and smiled, and she felt that she loved him, that everything in her life had forced her to this moment, and that she had no choice about it. They sat in the car for two hours in Albany, in the parking lot of a Howard Johnson's restaurant, talking trying to figure out their past. There was no future. They concentrated on the past, the several days behind them, lit up with a hot, dazzling August sun, like explosions that already belonged to other people, to strangers. Her face was faintly reflected in the green-tinted curve of the windshield, but she could not have recognized that face. She began to cry. She told herself, I am not here. This will pass. This is nothing. Still, she could not stop crying. The muscles of her face were springy like a child's. Unpredictable muscles. He stroked her arms and her shoulders, trying to comfort her. Oh, this is so hard. This is impossible, he said. She felt panic for the world outside this car, all that was not herself in this man. And at the same time, she understood that 
Well, she was free of him, as people are free of other people. She would leave him soon, safely. And within a few days, he would have fallen into the past, the impersonal past. I'm so ashamed of myself, she said, finally. Stay with us. We'll be right back. returned to her husband and saw that another woman, a shadow woman, had taken her place, noiseless and convincing, like a dancer performing certain difficult steps. Her husband folded her in his arms and talked to her of his own loneliness his worries about his business, his health. His mother, kept tranquilized and mute in a nursing home. And her spirit detached itself from her and drifted about the rooms of the large house she lived in with her husband. A shadow woman, delicate and imprecise, there was no boundary to her, no edge. Alone, she took hot baths and sat, exhausted, in the steaming water, wondering at her perpetual exhaustion. All that winter, she noticed the limp, languid weight of her arms her veins bulging slightly with the pressure of her extreme weariness. This is fate, she thought, to be here and not there, to be one person and not another, a certain man's wife and not the wife of another man. The long, slow pain of this certainty rose in her. But it never became clear. It was baffling and imprecise. She could not be serious about it. She kept congratulating herself on her own good luck to have escaped so easily, to have freed herself. Oh, so much love had gone into the first several years of her marriage that, well, there wasn't much left now for another man. Oh, she was certain of that. But the bathwater made her dizzy. All that perpetual heat. And one day in January, she drew a razor blade lightly across the inside of her arm near the elbow, to see what would happen. 
Afterwards, she wrapped a small towel around it to stop the bleeding. The towel soaked through. She wrapped a bath towel around that and walked through the empty rooms of her home, lightheaded, hardly aware of the stubborn seeping of blood. There was no boundary to her in this house, no precise limit. She could flow out like her own blood and come to no end. She sat for a while on a blue love seat, her mind empty. Her husband telephoned her when he would be staying late at the plant. He talked to her always about his plans, his problems, his business friends, his future. It was obvious that he had a future. As he spoke, she nodded to encourage him, and her heartbeat quickened with the memory of her own personal shame, the shame of this man's particular private wife. One evening at dinner, he leaned forward and put his head in his arms and fell asleep like a child. She sat at the table with him for a while, watching him. His hair had gone gray, almost white, at the temples. No one would guess that he was so quick, so careful a man, still fairly young about the eyes. She put her hand on his head lightly, as if to prove to herself that he was real. He slept, exhausted. One evening... They went to a concert, and she looked up to see her lover there in the crowded aisle in this city, watching her. He was standing there with his overcoat on, watching her. She went cold. That morning, the telephone had rung while her husband was still home, and she had heard him answer it, heard him hang up. It must have been a wrong number. And when the telephone rang again at 9.30, she'd been afraid to answer it. She'd left home to be out of the range of that ringing. But now, in this public place, in this busy auditorium, she found herself staring at that man, unable to make any sign to him, any gesture of recognition. He would have come to her. But she shook her head. No, stay away. Her husband helped her out of the row of seats, saying, Excuse us, please, excuse us. So that strangers got to their feet quickly, alarmed, to let them pass. Was that woman about to faint? What was wrong? At home, she felt the blood drain slowly back into her head. Her husband embraced her hips pressing his face against her in that silence that belonged to the earliest days of their marriage. She thought, well, he will drive it out of me. He made love to her, and she was back in the auditorium again, sitting alone. Now that the concert was over, 
The stage was empty. The heavy velvet curtains had not been drawn. The musicians' chairs were empty. Everything was silent and expectant. In the aisle, her lover stood and smiled at her. Her husband was impatient. He was apart from her, working on her, operating on her. And then, stricken, he whispered, Did I hurt you? The telephone rang the next morning, dully, sluggishly. She answered it. She recognized his voice at once, that Anna, with its lifting of the second syllable, questioning and apologetic, and making its claim. Yes, what do you want? She said. Just to see you, please. I can't. Anna, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I can't see you. Just, just for a few minutes. I have to talk to you. But why? Why now? Why now? She said. She heard her voice rising, but could not stop it. He began to talk again, drowning her out. She remembered his rapid conversation. She remembered his gestures, the witty, energetic circling of his hands. Please don't hang up, he cried. I can't. I, I don't want to go through it again. I'm not going to hurt you. Just tell me how you are. Everything is the same. Everything's the same with me. She looked up at the ceiling shyly. Your wife, your children? The same. Your son? Oh, he's fine. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I Is it still the same with you? Your marriage? Tell me. Tell me what you feel, what you're thinking. I don't know. She remembered his intense, eager words, the movement of his hands, that impatient, precise fixing of the air by his hands, the jabbing of his fingers. Do you love me? He said. She could not answer. I'll come over to see you, he said. No, she said. What will come next? What will happen? Flesh hardening on his body, aging, shrinking. Oh, he will grow old, but not soft like her husband. They are two different types. He is nervous, lean, energetic, wise. She will grow thinner as the tension radiates out from her backbone, wearing down her flesh. Her collarbones will jut out of her skin. Her husband, caressing her in their bed, will discover that she is another woman. She is not there with him. Instead, she is 
rising in an elevator in a downtown hotel, carrying a book as a prop, or walking quickly away from that hotel, her head bent and filled with secrets. Love? What to do with it? Useless as moth's wings, as moth's flutterings. She feels the flutterings of silky, crazy wings in her chest. He flew out to visit her every several weeks, staying at a different hotel each time. He telephoned her and she drove down to park in an underground garage at the very center of the city. She lay in his arms while her husband talked to her miles away. One body fading into another. He will grow old. His body will change, she thought, pressing her cheek against the back of one of these men. If it was her lover, they were in a hotel room, always the propped up little booklet describing the hotel's many services, with color photographs of its cocktail lounge and dining room and coffee shop. Mm. Grow old. Leave me. Die. Go back to your neurotic wife and your Sad, ordinary children, she thought. But still, her eyes closed gratefully against his skin, and she felt how complete their silence was, how they had come to rest in each other. Tell me about your life here, the people who love you, he said as he always did. One afternoon, they lay together for four hours. It was her birthday, and she was intoxicated with her good fortune, this prize of the afternoon, this man in her arms. She was a little giddy. She talked too much. She told him about her parents, about her husband. Oh, they were all people I believed in. But it turned out wrong. Now, I believe in you. He laughed, as if shocked by her words. She did not understand. And then she understood. But I believe truly in you. I can't think of myself without you, she said. He spoke of his wife her ambitions, her intelligence, her use of the children against him, her use of his younger son's blindness. All of his words gentle and hypnotic and convincing in the late afternoon peace of this hotel room. And she felt the terror of laughter, threatening laughter. Their words, like their bodies, were aging. She dressed quickly in the bathroom, drawing her long hair up 
around the back of her head, fixing it, as always anxious that everything be the same. Her face was slightly raw from his face, the rubbing of his skin. Her eyes were too bright, wearily bright. Her hair was blonde, but not so blonde as it had been that summer in the white Nantucket air. She ran water and splashed it on her face. She blinked at the water, blind, drowning. She thought with satisfaction that soon, soon he would be back home in that house on Long Island that she had never seen. With that woman she had never seen, sitting on the edge of another bed, putting on his shoes. She wanted nothing except to be free of him. Why not be free? Oh, she thought suddenly, I will follow you back and kill you, you and her and the little boy. What is there to stop me? She left him. Everyone on the street pitied her. That look of absolute zero. We'll be back with the conclusion next week. Good night. Keyword, check off. <laughs>